I would like to start this episode with a question to you, the listener. Ask yourself how many devices can you spontaneously think of that use a battery? I believe there's a high chance that you're listening to this podcast from one such device, either your smartphone or your laptop, but I am sure you can name more than those two. There are so many, from electronic devices such as the aforementioned phones and laptops to medical equipment such as pacemakers, both cardiac and neural, all the way to yeah, simplish devices like flashlights and, and clocks. I think it is fairly safe to say that the invention of batteries has revolutionized our world. My name is Johannes Vogel and you're listening to Chemistry in Everyday Life, my podcast where I explain the chemistry that happens all around us in layman's terms. Chemistry is the study of the attributes and changes that substances can undergo, no matter if they're gases, liquids or solids. And believe me when I tell you that this happens everywhere around us at this very moment. So batteries, in a nutshell, are devices that provide portable electricity. And it does that with the help of a very basic chemical concept called redox reactions. Effectively, what we need for electricity to occur is a circular flow of ions or electrons. So essentially, we have an electrical circuit that is being closed by the battery. So how can we create electrons chemically? The answer, as I mentioned before, is a so-called reduction-oxidation reaction, short redox reaction. Let me explain those fancy terms briefly. When a compound loses an electron, it is said to be oxidized. That means the process of losing an electron is called oxidation. Conversely, when a compound obtains an electron, it is said to be reduced. The process of gaining an electron is called reduction. To remember this, there was an acronym that I learned at high school, OIL RIG. It's short for oxidation is loss of electrons, reduction is gain, again, of electrons. I don't know what it is with acronyms, but this particular one really stuck with me. But why exactly certain elements lose electrons, that is, they are oxidized, and why others gain electrons, that is, they are reduced, depends on the option to attain a better stability. Just one example of an observation that was made. There are several others, which are a bit too much for this episode, but so broadly speaking, the most stable elements are the noble gases, like helium or neon. That is why they're called noble gases, because they're so stable, it is beneath them to react and interact with the commoners, the common elements like lithium and chlorine. Every other element close in structure to a noble gas, this is again, broadly speaking, tries to attain as many electrons as the nearest noble gas. So if an element has one electron too many, it tries to lose it, and gets oxidized in the process. This way then it has the same amount as, no, as a noble gas. That would be, for example, lithium. On the other side, if one element lacks one electron to achieve that zen state of noble gasness, it looks to take one electron from the environment, so it tries to get reduced. 
this likelihood can even be measured. It's, it's called the electrode potential and is measured in the unit volts, which is quite not so incidentally the unit one uses to describe the power of a battery. So you see, the combination redox reactions and batteries is, is quite intertwined. So redox reactions are reactions between one side losing some electrons and the other side gaining some. If you let this all happen in one pot, inside a solvent, for example water with some table salt in it, you would most likely notice that the solution becomes hot. Sometimes very, very boiling hot. And that's not really what you want. Just to remind ourselves, what we do want is a controlled flow of electrons, or ions, from one end to the other via the electric circuit that we so conveniently set up so that all that fancy stuff can happen. Whatever that fancy stuff is, like telling the time and beeping when a set time is reached or going on Twitfacegram, whatever you call that, or, or to call someone, you name it, whatever that just is. Well, the way to do this, as laid out by people far more clever than I am, that is to first isolate the part of the redox reaction that gives the electrons from the part that accepts the electrons. So visually speaking, you want to have two separate buckets. Then you connect them with, for example, a wire with your device in between. That, sh that should do it. But unfortunately, it kind of doesn't because we have not closed the circuit yet. What you also need is a connection between the two buckets that allows the electrons to flow back, but not the solid elements themselves. This is a medium called an electrolyte. Usually it is some kind of ionic gel, solid or something in between. And this then closes the circuit and electrons flow. As is always the case, theory is awesome, but it is abstract. So let's run through a visual example. I've spoken mostly about electrons, but in this case it is actually ions that are moving. But I use it because we can easily visualize it. This is something called a galvanic cell. The idea is the following. If you had a bucket of water and you dissolved a salt in it called copper sulfate, which is copper with two less electrons than in its neutral state, and then you dropped in a solid piece of the metal zinc, you would see a dark solid forming on the surface of the zinc metal. This is solid copper metal that took two electrons from the zinc and became solid. In turn, the zinc would become zinc 2 plus because it loses two electrons and goes into solution as zinc sulfate. In the process, the water solution would warm up as this reaction creates heat. Now, we have two buckets. These can be referred to as half cells, one with zinc sulfate in water and one with copper sulfate in water. And you submerge in the bucket with zinc sulfate a solid rod of zinc metal and in the copper sulfate a solid rod of copper metal. And then you connect those two rods with a wire each 
that connects to something that can measure a voltage. Uh, like a voltage meter, I guess. Clever, Johannes. So now, all we need is something that allows passing of ions between the two buckets. And that would be, in this case, a gel with potassium sulfate. Something called an electrolyte, as I mentioned before. In this situation, the voltage meter would measure some voltage while the zinc metal goes into solution as zinc 2 plus. And then that would become less and less metal, you know, the zinc metal would be used up. Well, on the other side, the copper rod would become more as the copper sulfate is reduced. That is, it receives electrons to become copper metal. Over time, because you will have less copper 2 plus than sulfate in the water solution, you will find that zinc 2 plus traveled through the gel to the other side to even out the amount of metal ions to sulfate because it always has to be one to one. The reaction would stop once all the zinc is used up, which is also the moment when the galvanic cell stops giving electricity. That means it goes flat. So this is the concept of a battery. But I was talking about two buckets and wires and gels in a tube. Not exactly something you can put into your pocket for use on smartphones, right? So let's talk now about a real-life example. So if we take one of the most commonly used batteries around the world, an alkaline battery of any manufacturer, in there we see everything that I just described. Alkaline are called alkaline because other batteries are acidic in nature. Alkaline is the opposite of that. An alkaline substance is, for example, potassium hydroxide that is mixed with a zinc in powder form and all of that in a gel. Gel to make it easier handleable. This part at the center of the battery is connected to the negative outlet of the battery, the flat bit. That is the part that is oxidized. That means it loses electrons and turns into a compound called zinc oxide. The name of that is not really important. Around this gel, you have a physical barrier to the other half cell that allows ions or electrons to go through, but not the metal itself. That is typically something like cellulose. This is the electrolyte that is there to make sure the battery does not short circuit itself. And around that, you have another paste consisting of a manganese dioxide and carbon powder. The carbon is there for better conductivity, but the thing getting reduced is the manganese dioxide. That is to something called dimanganese trioxide. Again, not super important, other than this is what drives the electric current, but the names, don't worry about them right now. The fact is that we are turning two compounds into different compounds as electrons move through. The construction itself has more things around it, but it always centers around either safety, such as let's make sure the alkaline solution does not leak out, which is bad for the environment and really dangerous for children, or let's improve conductivity and make it a better battery regarding lifetime and storage. So that is what a non-rechargeable battery looks like. You can find them in your standard formats like AA or AAA or whichever format you can think of. 
Before we move on from here, I wanted to briefly come back to what I said earlier about a redox reaction happening all in one place would just cause the solution to heat up. A couple of years ago, there were reports of portable devices manufactured by Samsung that overheated or even exploded. Now that we looked at the construction of a battery, you can maybe appreciate what happened here. To my understanding, the issue was that the electrolyte, you know, the barrier between the two halves of the redox reaction, was damaged or faulty, which can happen if you inadvertently bend the battery. The redox reaction then happened all in one place, which caused a lot of heat. Gases formed, and when you have rapid formation of heat and gas, what you can get is an explosion. So this is what happened there, okay? You may have noticed that so far, I did not mention anything about rechargeable batteries. The reason for this is rather simple. And that is that non-rechargeable ones are simpler to discuss the concept. And second, the principle stays the same. The only difference is that attaching the rechargeable batteries to an electric current allows us to reverse the redox reaction in the case of rechargeable batteries. This process is never perfect or not perfect. I don't know if never. Maybe someone will find it out. And over time... It changes the structure of the battery and renders it less performant. So, yeah, the chemical structure on the reverse process may not always yield the compound that we started out with. This is dependent on quite a few factors, such as external temperature. Is it zero degrees Celsius or 60? You know, how fast is the battery charged? which materials are used, and, you know, the list goes on. It's quite complex. Rechargeable systems, such as the well-known lithium-ion batteries that you can find in smartphones, are carefully developed to allow for a maximum amount of recharge and the longest possible time to supply the device with enough electricity. You'll actually find that every year there are millions invested in developing better batteries, as they still have advantages and drawbacks, especially the drawbacks you want to address. Which brings me to my last point about batteries. One of the big issues is recyclability. First off, it is absolutely possible to recycle batteries, but it is currently hardly done, because mining the materials is still cheaper in many cases. Nonetheless, Batteries contain toxic materials, so many regions, such as the USA and the European Union, have passed laws that forbid throwing batteries in the solid waste bins, which would then end up in landfills, and in turn the batteries may then degrade and contaminate the ground. In the worst case, getting into the groundwater and then drunk by animals and humans. Recycling currently is still complex, but efforts are made, and with more and more electric cars being produced, we may actually see improvements in procedure that may make this a more profitable avenue to go down. With this being said, although there's much, much more to talk about, I shall leave it at that. As I said, batteries, think about how often we use them, then assume there are 10 more applications around you that use them too. I mean, seriously, what a game changer if you think about it. If you're not convinced of that, 
try and find an electric socket in a forest, would you? So yeah, anyways, guys, I hope it was reasonably clear and you enjoyed this episode. If you have comments or ideas for new topics, please leave comments on Twitter under at chemistryandeve1 or write directly to me under chem.podcast at gmail.com. If this was too fast to write down, I, I left, as usual, the information in the show notes. Also, if you liked what you listened to, please rate my show on the podcast platform of your choice. Thanks a lot and take care, folks. You've been listening to Chemistry in Everyday Life, a podcast about chemistry that happens all around us, explained in layman's terms. Thank you for listening.